Well, when God made the world, he created humanity in his image. And we ask the question, why? Why did God create humanity uniquely in his image? And he did that, of course, to image from humanity, to image his greatness, his beauty to the world. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they then lied about that greatness. But later, God then chose Abraham to have an offspring that would become a people wherein he would live in the midst of them. So as again, to image, to display his glory to the world. Isaiah 43, 7 says it clearly that Israel was created, quote, for his glory. And we saw that glory at the height of Israel during the reign of Solomon, where the kingdom was wealthy and wise and safe and just and orderly. And the reason for that beautiful kingdom and operating in that way was because it was godly. Kings and queens, we read about kings and queens were seeing the beauty, the order, the wisdom, and they were flocking to Israel to learn more about it, to see more about it up close until that glory faded as they're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did and sinning against God. But for a few hot seconds, things were well. There was a community there in Israel that was compelling to the world as it was meant to be, as God designed it to be. And maybe you've experienced that yourself before in some ways. Maybe you saw a family. Maybe you saw a school, a a sports team, a group of friends, maybe even a church where there was something about them that was right and beautiful and compelling such that it compelled you to move closer into them. You wanted to be like them. Well, friends, that's God's plan for the church. That's what we'll see this morning to be a countercultural community that compels the world by its law. That's what we'll see from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Big idea this morning, if you get lost, big idea is this. Gracious love quiets so that it might compel. Gracious love quiets so that it might compel, here's the exhortation, aspire to live quietly in the gospel. That's what we'll see. A little bit of context here from 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul is writing to a young church plant. This church that he's writing to, he helped start, he helped plant. This church is less than six months old, we believe, at the time of this writing. And so this freshly planted church, Paul knows, he's heard about, he experienced. In kind of First Baptist Thessalonica, it's going well, but it's rife with afflictions. This young church is experiencing a lot of stuff, but things are going well amidst the afflictions. Uh, We read in chapter 1, verse 8, that their love of Christ and his gospel and the transformation that it has brought to this new little church has so sounded forth. The word there echoed throughout the region of Macedonia and Achaia. Paul will bring that up again today. Paul has just finished telling them in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, he's just finished telling them that God's will for their life is their sanctification. Their sanctification. Their Their counted righteous in Christ And they're progressively growing up in who they are. Increasingly, that is, this little community, this little church, increasingly, this is God's will for them, increasingly being set apart in purity from the world while still being in the world. Or as we like to say, being a suburb of heaven and the country of earth. That was their will. That's God's will for them. That leads us to our passage in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God 
to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Key parts of understanding this passage for our lives together are found in three words. If we're going to understand that passage I just read, you need to understand three words. And by understanding those three words, you'll understand the rest of the passage. And those three words to understand, to understand the passage are found in verse 9, the word love. In verse 11, the word live quietly. You're going, Nathan, that's two words. It's one word in the original. Love, live quietly, and third, verse 12, properly. Understand those three words, you will get what Paul's trying to say. So let's take them in order, that word love. Paul says they don't need anyone to teach them about brotherly love. And the word there, as you can probably tell, is Philadelphia. Brotherly love, right? There's different words for love. In the English, we have one word for love, right? Surely you understand when I say I love hot dogs and I love my church and I love my wife. Y'all hopefully know, right? Those are three different types of love. They're not the same thing. And in the original, in the Greek, we get these three words. And the first one, the one that's being used there, the brotherly love, is Philadelphia. It's a family love. They don't need anyone, Paul is saying, to teach them because, and he goes on, They've been taught by God, that's a big deal, to love one another. Now, there's another word for love there. I'll come to that in a second. But when he says there that they've been taught by God, he's referencing what he just told them in verse 8. Namely, that God has given them the Holy Spirit, wherein God is testifying to their spirit. And so when the Christian trusts and treasures Christ for salvation, uh, that gospel Uh, The spirit then begins to take up residence within the person, the soul of the person. He or she becomes the temple of God. And internally, as the spirit of God is inside of them, that spirit of God is so teaching them. God is teaching them as the word goes forth right now in this moment. As the word goes forth, I am clearly not God, but as the word goes forth internally in the Christian, God is teaching the Christian. And Paul is saying God's doing that. It's happening. And what is it exactly that God is teaching? We'll look again there in verse 9. To love one another. And again, this second word love there in verse 9 is a different one from the other one, the other Philadelphia. This word here, the second half of verse 9, is that uniquely Christian word called agape love. And it's unique because this this word was scarcely used at the time of the writing of this letter. But Christians used it often because it perfectly describes the love of God in the gospel. See, agape love, unlike eros love or even family love, is not based upon an experience or an emotion, but upon the will. Philadelphia love, right? I love my brother because he's my brother, right? Eros love, where we get our word erotic, is based upon attraction, right? I I see my wife, she's beautiful, therefore I'm attracted to her, right? She's made herself worthy of my love. She's done something to, we might say, earn that love. That's eros love. Similarly, 
Uh, we also see in Philadelphia love, it's earned in the sense that I kind of have to love my family members, right? I was kind of born into that. But agape love is different. It's absent of any earning. That's why it is seated in the will, in the will of God, in the gospel. And we see this so clearly in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Where there Paul writes, but God shows his agape. He shows his unconditional love. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so when Christ looked upon me, there was absolutely nothing attractive about me. In fact, it's worse. Not only was there nothing attractive or desirable about me, there was everything that was unattractive about me when God set his love upon me. I was motivated by whatever it is I wanted to do. I didn't care anything about his good and gracious commands. Even when I tried to obey him, it was sort of because I thought I thought they might be helpful. I didn't care anything about him. I didn't love his word, didn't love his church, didn't care for the poor, the marginalized, the weak. I cared about me. Nothing desirably. Also, God was not obligated in any way to love me. In other words, he didn't have Philadelphia for me, right? I or all those apart from Christ were just that. We were apart from Christ. I wasn't in the family as such. Like Adam and Eve and later like Israel, I was exiled. I was outside of the love of God. So God had no eros for me. There was nothing attractive about me. Had no Philadelphia for me because I was not yet in his family. And yet he offered me something better. Agape love. He chose. God chose to set his affection upon me, though I had done nothing to deserve it and everything to not deserve it. I was unworthy of the love of God. God loved me, though I was unworthy. And yet he sent his son to rescue me. Me. This is unbelievable. This is the good news of the gospel, wherein I deserve the wrath of God. And yet God sent his only son into the world to live the life that I should have lived, to pay the price that I should have paid on the cross, taking the wrath of God on my behalf, dying, raising on the third day, giving me hope, setting his love upon me. And I've done nothing to deserve it and everything to not deserve it. Good news. Church is a grace-based community. It's a community of people that have been loved by the Most High God by grace, not by works. We are not loved because of our performance, but in spite of our performance. God graciously set his affection upon us and made us alive together with Christ by grace. And I was taught that. Our church has been taught that. Every authentic Christian has been taught that through the proclamation of the gospel as it is instructed to us by the Holy Spirit of God. God has taught us his agape love. And it is this agape love, this unconditional, sacrificial choice of God to set his affection upon his enemies that then also made me his adopted son. Which means God not only agaped me, he also philadelphia me. We see this so clearly in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Paul again writing to another church in Ephesus. Uh, Even as he chose us in him, in his son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy 
and blameless before him. That goes back to the passage from last week that we considered. In love, in agape, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And this, friends, is why Paul wrote what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4-5, to at the beginning of this letter. For now, uh, brothers loved by God, uh, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Agape and Philadelphia love is how the Christian comes alive. Not being worthy of any of it. And God graciously offering it. Unconditional sacrificial love and family love was set upon God's people by the grace of God which gave us life. And so, since it is God's will for us, go back up there in chapter 4, verse 3. Since it is God's will for our lives, his will for our lives is our sanctification, our holiness. We have positional holiness in Christ, and we progressively grow up in that. That's his will for us, that we grow in that uh, holiness. That's his will for our, our lives. The sanctification is going to come how? By our loving one another like God loved us. That's how it's going to come. Sacrificial, grace-based, and family love is how we will grow up in that sanctification. So Paul goes on to say to the church there in Thessalonica, listen, you're doing this. And he goes on to say, you're doing this so much so that brothers and sisters from, from throughout Macedonia have heard about it. But, verse 10, take a look at it. He then says, this is the we there, is the this folks, uh, the Timothy and Silas. Right, We urge you to do this more and more. That leads to the second word. Remember I said there's three words in this passage to help us understand. The first word was love. The second word was live quietly. One word in the original. We urge you to love one another more and more. And he says to aspire to live quietly. Now he's not saying that we should just shut up ourselves from the world and kind of go and live away from the world, live quietly, get away from all of them. No, he's saying literally the exact opposite. Slide down to verse 12. He wants our love to be so seen by the outside world that it's compelling to them. We'll get to that. But you'll notice the call to love one another more and more is directly connected to the call to aspire, to dream, to strive towards a quiet life. Unconditional grace and family-based love should be happening more and more in the church as you grow up, as you're sanctified. And as it does, as that love grows more and more in me and in each other, it should be leading to an aspiring, an aspiration of a quiet life. That's the idea. The gracious family love of God should lead to aspirations of a life in that or out of that gracious family love. In other words, the love of God is the fuel of aspiring to live quietly in the world. And what does it mean? Say, Nathan, can you tell me a little bit more? Double click on that word, live quietly. Can you help me understand that a little more? Well, he goes on, Paul does. He goes on to talk about how we need to have our mind, we need to mind our own affairs. Talks about that. And to work with our hands. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. In other words, if we are defined or oriented by the love of Christ, it should lead to aspiration of a quiet life with others. In other words, we don't meddle in other people's affairs. 
We aren't lazy such that we depend upon others to provide for us. We don't complain about our personal preferences, our likes and our dislikes. We don't lob Twitter bombs at our Christian family, right, over the Internet, right? We don't display pictures of our lives on Instagram so as to have people envy us. Why? Because we're already perfectly loved by God in Christ. We don't need that. The love of God has quieted our clanky, needy, complainy, bitter souls so that we don't need to perform in order to feel loved and accepted. We already are, not only by somebody else, but by God himself, who knows us more thoroughly than anybody else. We already are by the God of the universe, and we are also known and loved by his blood-bought people, by you guys. Loving each other. We're loved by them. And so with those two things, with the love of God and the love of the church built upon a grace-based family love, an agape in Philadelphia love, we have all that we need. What else do we need? Therefore, we should then aspire to live quietly. We should not aspire, in other words, to be a burden to someone else in the church or outside, but instead we should be a blessing. Because we have all we need in Christ. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 2, verse 9, where he illustrates this point himself. When he says that you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. Why? That we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And so Paul is saying, having been first and finally loved by God, by no performance of your own, Love one another like God loved you. Aspire, desire, strive, long to be so quieted in that love that you don't need to be envious, you don't need to be empty, you don't need to be gossipy or lazy or complaining. I don't know if that's a word, but I made it up. But instead, a quieted soul that works hard with your own hands even. And he uses that kind of most blue-collar kinds of examples so as to communicate that don't let any work be beneath you, just as it wasn't beneath Christ to lay his life down on a cross. And that leads to the final word. So that you might walk properly. There's the third word. You might walk properly before outsiders. So gospel-shaped, spirit-empowered love teaches and fills our empty souls by grace, not by performance. It teaches and empowers us to love one another in the peace of Christ. And as the entire church community loves like this with quieted souls, it produces a gospel community that properly instructs outsiders. And we should note that there is something outsiders. Everybody's not the same. The Bible doesn't have this category where everybody's safe. There's those that are inside Christ and those that are outside. It produces a gospel community inside the life of the church that compels people when they look in at the love of one another in the peace of Christ. It will produce a compelling community to those outside of it. That's the point that Paul's making in this passage. I love how the International Standard Version puts it. It says there, make it your goal to live quietly, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may win the respect of outsiders. And have need of nothing. Uh, the message puts it similarly. We want, uh, we want you to live in a way that will command the respect of outsiders. Not lying around sponging off of your friends. 
Christian love produces full hearts that are able then to live quietly and love one another, which produces, as that happens, a compelling community to those that are outside the community, which comes back to what I said, the big idea of this passage is, gracious love quiets that it might compel. Now, I could illustrate Paul's point here by making the opposite point, couldn't I? Let's just talk for a moment about how the church hasn't done this and how it has proved to be a terrible witness to Christ and his gospel, right? We can consider how the church has failed in the Crusades, how the church has failed in Jim Crow, how the church has failed by the moral failure of pastors, how the church has failed with greediness, uh, abuse cover-ups, power-hungry groups within the church, gossip, church-to-church competitions and splits, worship wars. I could go on and on. There has been so much failure to not love one another from Christ to Christ as Christ has loved us because our souls have not been quieted in the love of Christ such that we start to sin against each other and not compel people. And even the people that are inside the church, and maybe this is one of you this morning, you're tempted to get out of the church because you've seen all the mess. Well, that point makes Paul's point. The church is supposed to be the opposite. Your thinking is exactly right. It shouldn't be like that. And when it is right, that when it is actually right and proper, it's beautiful. Just as it was meant to be. When the church loves as God has loved himself in the Trinity. When the church loves in the same way that Christ loved his bride, the church. Oh, the most compelling beauty that allures the most hardened of sinners. Amazing. That's what Paul is calling us to here. Churches that embody the gracious love that quiets the soul and compels those apart from Christ. This is the love and the life that the world is looking for and is exhausting itself to find. And the reason why the world is so exhausted is because the community, the life that the world, the outsiders are looking for, they are actually looking for agape love. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to build community off of eros love. Let me give you some examples of this, and maybe this will resonate with some of you. So, for instance, remember, eros love is this sort of love for the worthy as opposed to the church, which is love for the unworthy. So, for instance, the love of the world, the outsider's kind of love, which is an eros love, to be part of, say, the Washington Nationals fan club. Well, you have to love the Washington Nationals, right? To be part of the local middle school, you have to be in their boundaries of their schools. Otherwise, you're not permitted. To be a Republican or a Democrat, you've got to vote Republican or Democrat. If you don't submit to the party platform, you aren't welcome. You aren't loved. To be part of the conservative or the liberal groups, you have to celebrate their ideas of whatever they think is love, love is and love does. Otherwise, you have not counted yourself worthy of their love, eros love. And now the love in the family is better, right? doesn't mean that love in the family is always better. Sometimes it's awful. But often it can be sort of common grace better, right? With that Philadelphia love, that brotherly love, you are loved because you were born into the family. Again, it's kind of built in. But even then, sometimes you love your family because you kind of have to. If you have a family member here, don't look over at them right now. But even the family love is not by nature that agape love, that grace-based, unconditional, sacrificial love for the unworthy. 
See, every community outside of the gospel community in the church is based upon eros or maybe at best Philadelphia love. And that is some kind of love that is offered because you've made yourself worthy of their love. Every other community is built upon a love that demands you perform. Not once, but you've got to keep on performing. It's exhausting. I'll give you a good example of this that I read this week. Uh, many of you know that my family sort of loves baseball. Um, maybe too much sometimes. And so I follow um, these other coaches to kind of give some advice to help me help me coach my kids and if I coach teams. And I saw one this week that as I saw it, I thought, well, that's a great example of Aeros love. It's so much like the rest of the world, the community they're trying to build. Here's what the coach says. Quote, deserve is a word that should never be spoken in competitive effort. You deserve nothing. Hmm. You earn everything. Every day you must earn your way. And as the saying goes, rent is due daily. Friends, that is the love of the masses. That's how we're trying to build it here. In its clubs, in its communities, in its tribes, it preaches agape love, and it practices eros love. you got to keep performing. It claims to love everyone just as they are, and yet, the rent is due daily. Everything is earned. From your politics, to your pay scale, to the house or neighborhood you live in, to the color of your skin, to security clearances, to marital statuses, to child statuses, to country of origin, to sexual preferences, to what you wear and what you choose not to wear, to awards and accomplishments, to your knowledge of sports or economics. We will even measure you based upon your educational levels or age. And if you don't meet my group's standard, you're out. Or cancer. You're not well. We say love is love, but we don't actually really mean that. You get married because you, quote, love each other. Only to get divorced two years later because, well, quote, you fell out of love. You're invited to speak at conferences about injustices. Only to be invited to those same conferences. Not because you have moved, but because they did. You have to say the right things on Twitter. Post the perfect picture on Instagram. Or don't. And tell everybody that you don't. <laughs> perform, perform, perform. And if you do, I'll love you. It's absolutely exhausting because the rent is always due. Because it's a love for the world. It's an eros love. It's not an agape love. And yes, it is true. As I have said, the church can sometimes so love like the world that there is no mistakable difference between us and them. And that, friends, is a tragedy that again makes Paul's point here. The love of the world is exhausting, and the love within the church is to be enlightening, is to be restful, hopeful, life-giving. And maybe this explains a lot about where you're at in life now. You feel like an outsider everywhere you go. Just when you think that you found a kind of community, uh, you disappoint them and they treat you like an outsider. And you're sick and tired of the toxicity and the performative community that is the love of the world and you're tired. Friend, if that's you, help me coach my kids and if I coach teams. And I saw one this week that as I saw it, I thought, well, that's a great example of Aeros love. 
It's so much like the rest of the world, the communities they're trying to build. Here's what the code says. Quote, deserve is a word that should never be spoken in competitive effort. You deserve nothing. Hmm. You earn everything. Every day you must earn your way. And as the saying goes, rent is due daily. Friends, that is the love of the masses. And that's how we're trying to build it again. In its clubs, in its communities, in its tribes, it preaches agape love, and then it practices eros love. You gotta keep performing. It claims to love everyone just as they are, and yet, the rent is due daily. Everything is earned. From your politics to your pay scale, to the house or neighborhood you live in, to the color of your skin, to security clearances, to marital statuses, to child statuses, to country of origin, to sexual preferences, to what you wear and what you choose not to wear, to awards and accomplishments, to your knowledge of sports or economics. We will even measure you based upon your educational levels or age. And if you don't meet my group standard, you're out. You're canceled. You're not love. We say love is love, but we don't actually really mean that. You get married because you, quote, love each other. Only to get divorced two years later because, well, quote, you fell out of love. You're invited to speak at conferences about injustices. Only to be invited to those same conferences. Not because you have moved, but because they did. You have to say the right things on Twitter. Post a perfect picture on Instagram. Or don't. And tell everybody that you don't. <laughs> perform, perform, perform. And if you do, I'll love you. It's absolutely exhausting because the rent is always due. Because it's a lawful word. It's an eros love. It's not an agape love. And yes, it is true. As I have said, the church can sometimes so love like the world that there is no mistakable difference between us and them. And that, friends, is a tragedy that again makes Paul's point here. The love of the world is exhausting, and the love within the church is to be enlightening, is to be restful, hopeful, life-giving. And maybe this explains a lot about where you're at in life now. You feel like an outsider everywhere you go. Just when you think you found a kind of community, uh, you disappoint them and they treat you like an outsider. And you're sick and tired of the toxicity and the performative community that is the love of the world in your time. Friend, if that's you, let me invite you to come and join the band of misfit boys here on the island of Christ. We will be the first to tell you, at least we ought to. We will be the first to tell you of our sins and our struggles. Of how we don't measure up the standard laid out for us in Christ. I was thinking about this. When we were confessing our sins as a church, where does that happen? In the world. Where are we saying out loud? We fail! So we're going to tell you. And this, by the way, what we just did there, you're like, well, that's just formality. No, no, no. I was mean in what I was saying. And I know at least two or three of these are mean in the same thing. Alright? The gospel community we are endeavoring to form here may even make you uncomfortable because of how comfortable we are in our own skin. Knowing that we lie, we cheat, 
We steal time from our employers. We struggle to treasure Christ together. We don't pray. We don't evangelize. We don't give up our time and our money as we should. We have disordered loves and desires. We don't love each other as we should. But here's the thing. It's different. Some people might say, well, yeah, that's authentic community. No, 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 no. We're not okay with it. We're endeavoring to change. Yeah. We're endeavoring to grow up in God's will for us. We're endeavoring to be sanctified. Yeah. Not because we have to earn God's love, but because we already have been loved. Amen. That's the difference. That's the grace-based love that marks our community. We are not okay with our failures. We confess them. We are laboring by the grace of God, not primarily our own grit. Remember, look at verse 8 of chapter 4. By the Spirit of God, yes, our wills to become more like what we have been declared to be when we receive the grace of forgiveness of Christ. We believe that our freedom was found when we stopped trying to be like God and fit into the world and have our own kingdom. Freedom was found when we just rejected that lifestyle, repented of our sins, and trusted Christ. That's when our freedom, freedom started. That's when our joy came. It's there at the confession of our sin. When we are honest about our failures and we receive the love of Christ and we receive uh, that hope of heaven that introduced to us the grace-based, spirit-enabled power that leads us to the good life in Christ. Our failures are the very thing that make us qualify for Christ's love. Amen. We became a community not because we made ourselves work. It was exactly the opposite. God first loved us while we were enemies. We were ugly, we were foolish, we were rebellious, we were irresponsible, we were lazy, and Jesus said, I'll take her. His love and graciously beautified. Amazing. We weren't loved because we were loved. We became lovely. Because we were first loved by God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's His. And so we don't feel the need to put on superficial smiles. Church family, we don't feel the need to put on superficial smiles. Cut it out. Y'all heard me say this numerous times. I know you. You know me. I'm a piece of work. You're a piece of work. Let's stop acting like we're not a piece of work. We don't feel the need to put all those superficial smiles act like we have it all together because we know we don't. Because that's where our joy began. When we stopped trying to pretend. As one friend of mine says, it put on our confidence costume. <laughs> we confess our sins, we don't hide it, and in receiving the grace of forgiveness and the power of redemption to grow up more into Him who is our joy. Striving to live quietly in that love and with others loving them in that love. The only non-failure that has ever been in the history of the world is Jesus. And that's what we give our lives to him. We want more of the one that first loved us. We want to change. God promises us to do that. That's why God's will for us is our sanctification. Learning to be in practice what we are declared to be in truth. We don't want to stay where we are anymore than I want to stay in the same love that I had for my wife 20 years ago. I want to grow up more into it. I want to be more like Jesus and less like me. Yeah. So let me invite you, friends, to turn from the ways that you sought to make yourself worthy to the world. Maybe even turn from the ways you thought you could make yourself worthy to God. 
Turn from that love. Turn from Eros love and find the God they love. Turn from man-pleasing and to God-pleasing. First Thessalonians 4.1. Look at that. There's our motives. Pleasure. Pleasure in God. Turn from rebellion against God. Turn to the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. That by dying to ourselves, we might actually come to find the rest that our souls are looking for. By dying. Not by trying to live by our own exertion. Gracious love quiets the soul so that it might compel the world. Here's the application for us. Restoration. Right there. Take a look at it. Verse 9 and 10. As God has taught us and is teaching us to love one another, I, as your pastor, urge us more and more to love one another. And to aspire to live quietly in that love. And that's going to be three things for us, guys. Church family, that means three things for us. One, we've got to keep learning the love of God, and in so doing, have quiet souls that live quietly. Second, it's going to be we're going to love one another in that love. And then third, that more outsiders may be compelled to love like Christ. Just look at those briefly. Just think about that. As to learning the love of God, Restoration Church, beloved, it is absolutely critical that you rehearse the love of Christ to yourselves every single day. And to come here every Sunday to be quieted by the love of Christ. Another way of saying that is, God, you have got to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. If you don't wake up knowing that you are perfectly loved, then you're going to try to go and earn somebody else's love that day. Mm-hmm. You have to know that. Wake up. Feast on Christ. Jeremiah Brooks. Fantastic book. Rare jewel of Christian contempt. Old dead guy. 500 year old. Fantastic. He's like a wilderness, right? you got to walk through a, a few uh, cloudy places and dark places to get to the light, but it's fantastic. I'll give you an example. He talks about this. Christian contentment. He talks about Christian contentment by comparing two metal cylinders to one another. He says that one water, one of those cylinders, one of those metal cylinders is full of water, and the other one is empty. When you strike the vessel that is full, what happens? It makes very little noise. When you strike the vessel that is empty, loud. Claim. Same is true for the Christian. The more his or her heart is full of the gracious love of God, as life strikes you in the face, you won't make a much more to be quiet. But if the vessel of your heart is lacking the love of God in Christ, you will be loud. As it is your business, beloved, to wake up from the bed and go feed your body, wake up from the bed and go feed your soul upon Christ. And don't stop there. Go at lunchtime. Go in the afternoon and the evening. Not only in the morning. Find some small passage, right, or some great promise that rehearses the love of Christ to you. And just think about that. Guys, don't get so locked in. I have to read a chapter of the Bible today. You don't have to do that. You understand Right? I'm going to make, I'm going to lighten your load and I'm going to make it happen. Right? You understand, right? On the one hand, most Christians in the history of the world did not own and still do not own one of these things. Right? Most Christians in the history, at least the first 1500 years of the church, nobody, most Christians didn't own this. So if the standard is read your Bible every day, then a whole lot of Christians are going to have a hard time obeying. Okay, so there's the light part. You're sitting there going, oh great, I don't have to read my Bible. I'm going to work this hard. Alright? That's why the scriptures are so emphasizing the meditation of the Lord. 
Read a sentence. Read a promise. Just think about it. Meditate on it. And if you're like, man, I don't know how to meditate. You stress out, you meditate. <laughs> think about it. Roll it over in your mind. Consider the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. Right? You, pro- you probably know, Christian. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? Just think about that all day. Consider it. Be amazed by it. And let that fuel your hands to work hard at your jobs. Not so that you might earn the favor of your co-workers, but they might so be interested in your Jesus. You're not working hard. God, help me, help me be, get really good at sort of thinking about you so I can work hard and everybody's going to love me. No, it's not the gospel. The gospel is, God, you love me so much, I'm going to work hard. Whatever comes, comes. They might fire me. Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> but my guess is somebody's watching. Be reminded, beloved, that your Heavenly Father looked upon you, not on your best day, but on your worst day. And there, on that day, He chose to set His affection upon you. Be reminded, beloved, that Christ came and came willingly, not to rescue a formless, nameless mass of people. No. But instead, He came to rescue His wife that He knew by name. He knows you by name. Alex, He knows you. Lexi, He knows you. Right? Winston, He knows you. Thomas, He knows you. Your name. He knows you. He loves you. He intends to love you to the end, just as he did his disciples. He never regrets getting involved with you. He shed his blood to atone for your sin. He resurrected to give you hope. Hope for your own resurrection. When you will see him, your great redeemer and friend, face to face. Amen. Beloved, and you will enjoy him forever. Looking upon his glory. These great promises. And this great hope must be your bread. You must rehearse the love of God to you, beloved. Let it quiet your soul such, uh, in such a way as to lead you to the great aspiration of living not loudly but quietly. Of not being a burden but being a blessing to others. Not complaining and groaning but instead being thankful and merciful to others. Second, you love one another more and more. First, remind of the love of God. Taught by God to love His love for you and then love more and more. The good news of this sacrificial, unconditional, agape love for one another is that it comes not from us, but the Lord, verse 8, gives us His Holy Spirit. And it's to so teach us and enable us towards His great ends. So if you think love for one another is hard, listen, if you think love for one another is hard, you have not understood the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's not hard. Impossible. <laughs> That's why we need the Holy Spirit. God's not like, I died for you. All right. Y'all figure it out. Right? Go do what I did. Oh, He deposits the Holy Spirit in you to so empower you to do and me to do what we cannot do on our own. That's why He is so gracious and merciful. Love one's love in the God And Take heart, church family. As we do this, we serve the will of our great God to sanctify us. As we love one another, we so sanctify ourselves by the grace of God, and we so serve as the hands of Peter Christ to sanctify our neighbors, our beloved Christian brothers and sisters. Try and consider, guys, as you love one another, and you're sitting alone, I don't want to answer that email, I don't want to answer that, I don't want to go do that. As you think about it, here comes whatever, my appointment to do this thing, my discipleship appointment, I'd rather stay home. Think about the gospel community that you're building. Try to get that in your mind. 
as you serve the least of these, our children, right? As you serve the financial and spiritual needs of our church, as you serve the emotional needs of our church, when you meet with women that have had a miscarriage, right? When jobs are lost and you talk to them, when loved ones die, and when good things occur, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Somebody got somebody had kids. Somebody got pregnant. Somebody got engaged. Somebody got a promotion. Somebody found out that their family member got saved. And you'll never meet them, but you're excited. You go and you enter into that door. As you bear burdens and rejoice with those that rejoice, discipling one another, yes, it's tiring, but as you do this, you make deposits in the gospel community. Something that the angels long to look into. Something that the Christ loves to look at. Consider even, as you think about a church family where we're trying to do this, love one another, consider making this church your home. Mm. Some of you don't have a choice to do You have to move every two or three years. The government is your master. <laughs> but for some of you, you can decide, I'm going to make this home. And not move around like everybody else does in the world every two or three years. Chasing more square footage. More vacation. And said, oh, there's, there's something here that I love and trust. I'm going to try to give myself to this 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years until Jesus comes back and I'm dead. I'm trying to build it up. I urge us to live quietly in the love of Christ. Jesus said, They will know that you are my disciples, how? By the way you love. Amen. And I agree with Paul. Restoration Church. You have no need for anyone to write to you. Mm-hmm. You do this so well. Amen. I thank God for the ways that you love one another. People, if you're not in Christ, man, it drives me nuts that y'all can't see the way these guys love each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are times, there are moments that I just wish, can we just figure out a way to get the internet, there's cameras everywhere, see what's going on by you, right? <laughs> and thank God for the way that you love one another. You had 50 people that you don't know come in this week and you signed up to serve, right? To hand out food, mission testing, Lord have mercy. Thank God for those two, mm-hmm. right? You love one another. I've watched you weep with those that weep. I've watched you laugh with those that laugh. I've watched people that are single and want to be married get excited if somebody else got married, mm-hmm. right? And I've, signed, and I've seen people that are married and see people that want to be married weep with those that are not. I thank God you have no need for someone to write to you about this. That's the reason you're trying to thank God. Thirdly, we'll finish here. We are receiving, we taught the agape love of God from that. We can love each other in that. Thirdly, that outsiders may be compelled by the love of Christ. Don't lose sight of that. Consider the Roman centurion who, upon the death of Christ, said, Look at Jesus and said, truly, this must be the song. Let the outside world look at our life together and say, truly, there is a Son of God and His love must be great. I see it in that collection of masked up people. Francis Shaver said that the church is love for one another. Outside the church is the final apologetic. And so, beloved, as you love one another, so love your neighbors that are not in Christ. Change a tire, provide a meal, listen to a friend who is troubled, pray for someone, provide a job for the poor, 
uh, being excellent at your jobs, labor to see some evil cured, or some injustice right. These things can be more compelling to those outside the faith than sometimes our philosophical ruminations. As they see us receive the sacrificial love of Christ, offer the sacrificial love of Christ to each other, and then offer that love to them, they might come to see Christ in you. This will testify to the greatness of our Christ that empowers us to these ends. And no church family, they are watching. More than you know. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people that are not Christians in this neighborhood. I've been around. And I didn't even realize they were watching, but they were watching. Keep in mind that we endeavor to lean into, we don't, we don't lean into our petty and preferential desires because they're watching. Yes, some are watching because they want to see us fall apart. That's true. They're watching with impure desires. Satan especially. He cannot wait for this thing to be broken up. He's scheming to do it. There are some. There are some outside the kingdom of heaven, and they've seen enough of Christ's hope that is real. And may they look at our life together and conclude that it is. So I leave you with one last illustration from Jeremiah Burroughs, who describes our blessed lot in the gospel. This is our story. He says that we that are in Christ, we that are being sanctified, we men and women of the gospel are as the innkeeper's children are. We are not as the guest of the inn is. We are the innkeeper's children, the guest is the outside world. While we may eat bland food, and that guest eats the finest food, while we may sleep upon the simple bed, and the guest upon the finest of beds, while the outsider has all the pomp and circumstance of the inn, he still must pay. Mm. We do not have mm. the bills to pay. Wow. We are loved by the king who cares for us with agape and Philadelphia love. Brothers and sisters, aspire to the quiet quiet as you have not earned the love of Christ and yet it's yours. Happily receive the love of Christ, be quiet in that love, and mind your own affairs and work hard, knowing that Christ will come soon enough, and we will see Him face to face. It is a long and difficult road, beloved, but we will be home soon enough.